The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, May 22nd, 2017. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. It is being reported today that Mike Flynn lied on security clearances to quote the screaming horde. Afford him the protection the law allows. Afford him the protection the law allows. It's not as good as lock him up, is it? So there you have it. Mike Flynn probably to uh, take the fifth, plead the fifth, will not testify or hand over materials to the Senate Intelligence Committee. In invoking the Fifth Amendment, Flynn officially becomes the Trump official who has shown the most deference to the Constitution thus far. Well, maybe that's not fair. Sebastian Gorka did try to bring a gun onto a commercial flight. So that's the second in your hearts, our rankings in the list of amendments. You know, none of them have billeted soldiers, so credit must be given. That is the domestic news. The foreign news has Trump today in Israel yesterday in Saudi Arabia, where he and his delegation were treated to a sword dance. Rex Tillerson sambaing with a saber, pretty emphatically. Fox in particular sought to put this sword dance in cultural context. There are few parties that are ever thrown like the Saudis can throw a royal welcome. Um, and they, they have a unique ability, and, and it's part of the culture. It's part of the Bedouin culture there. But over on ABC's This Week, Jonathan Carl had a different spin on the dancing with the sharp-bladed weapons thing. And the president was, was given at one point a ceremonial sword and took part in a, a peace dance, a traditional Saudi peace dance. A peace dance! Nothing says peace like a sword. Not even a dagger of understanding or a switchblade of tolerance. Hey, don't trip during the peace dance. You might impale yourself on one of those obvious implements of peace. You know what? If a cult handgun can be called the peacemaker here in the U.S., sure, I will buy that the sword dance is a peace dance. But if swords mean peace, it kind of takes a lot of the point out of the swords into plowshares thing, huh? Take that, Bible. On the show today, I shoot daggers of understanding at you over the $110 billion arms deal. That's a lot of swords, $110 billion. And also... They say a lot of jobs. Hmm. But first, there is a scourge afflicting our world. And if you can't say it by its name, you will never defeat it. Go ahead, say it with me. Werewolves. No, not a certain perverted form of werewolfism or so-called werewolfic extremists. Pure werewolf. They're not a species of peace. There's only one man who can stop them, and you can see him in the dark. He's Neon Joe, Werewolf Hunter, and he is up next on The Gist. When we last left Neon Joe, Werewolf Hunter... All them werewolves had been hunted. He beat the Cybots, or at least faced them down. There was some dewolfing <laughs> serum. I think he became a father. And there was a bit about Jello cubes. You'll have to go back to season one. Season two has Neon Joe falsely accused, incarcerated, and involved in a race against time, which, when you think about it, is all races. Just a longer way of saying a race sure, against yeah. time. Yeah. John Glazer is here. He's Neon Joe and so many other things. How are you? I'm good. Do you think now, so the history of this is, it starts as essentially a lark, a character on Conan, right? Or F- oh, Fallon. I was on Fallon yeah. and I was promoting the series finale of Delocated, which is another show I did in Adult yes. Swim. A real actual show that actual actually stupid, existed. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
And I just wanted to do something to amuse myself for the segment because just going on a talk show and just chit chat and blah, blah, it's just so boring uh, unless you're Peter O'Toole. Anyway, so, uh, <laughs> so I just chose these two articles of clothing that I had. One was a neon hoodie and a neon knit cap. Mm-hmm. And one was a pair of Coors Light sweatpants. <laughs> and I wore those again, arbitrarily paired, went on the show said that I was really sad Delocated was finishing up, but I was really excited for my new project. It's called Neon Joe Werewolf Hunter. Don't really know what the show is yet, but we, this is how the character dresses. That's all we got right now, but we're excited to figure it out. And that was it. A hundred percent fake, just a total joke. Yep. But I remember thinking that adult, I could see adult swim kind of saying, well, you know, we know that's a joke, but it sounds funny. It sounds like a show we've made. It's our kind of joke. Yeah, and yeah. that's exactly what happened. <laughs> they thought it was funny and they said, if you want to write a script, go ahead. Yeah. And so I did, and really starting from scratch, there was nothing. I mean, you got, I was just looking at the ratings, a million people watched all those episodes, and that probably doesn't count all the people who watched them online or a different way. I mean, it has, of the things you've done with your name prominent, it has as big a reach as most anything. That's pretty funny. Right? This Neon Joe thing. Well, that just proves that you can do something extremely stupid and it'll (laughs) respond to people. And I mean that in a good way. I'm not insulting anyone. (laughs) No. I I call it stupid. So, yeah. yeah. Bar ain't doing too good, Cleve. All my tropical dreams is slowly turning to tropical dust. You mean sand? Need a new gimmick. Don't be bringing up that wet t-shirt contest again. I told you I ain't comfortable showing my nips. Joe, you think maybe if you told people you were the world-famous werewolf hunter? That ain't my life no more. I bet there's a lot of people that would love buying drinks from a world-famous werewolf hunter. So when you think of uh, episodes and when you think of the different ways, places to take Neon Joe, what drives what you and the writers select to riff on? I think it's just whatever resonates in the room. It's just really me and two guys doing the bulk of the work. It's almost like we're trying to out stupid each other, you know, and just (laughs) annoy each other to no end. And it's just, you know, we all have a pretty similar sensibility and whatever just feels right to all of us is usually what ends up in there. And it's, it's still got to be organic to the premise and it's still got to feel right. It shouldn't just feel like we're doing these. Well, you could argue that it does feel (laughs) random and arbitrary, but it's really just throwing things out there and seeing what resonates the best for all of us and what feels right. And But is there an aspect to it where, uh, you know, you made the werewolf hunter joke just because you were wearing the pants that are caused the silver bullets, but maybe you're thinking, all right, what's all the werewolf media I've ever seen? And just immediately a bunch of things come to mind that can be riffable, that can be mockable. And I'm wondering if uh, anything went into season two, like genres, um, the prison genre I want to do, or the a court scene. I want to do that because here are a number of uh, takes I can have on it. I don't know if we necessarily thought of specific things like that and then fit them in the story. Yeah. I think it was more thinking, what's the story? Where is it going to lead us? And then once we got to those different places, it's what can we do there? Like there's a character called Plaid Jeff in the new season. He's a rival werewolf hunter. Mm -hmm. That was an idea from season one that we had that just never made it. So we for sure wanted to do it in this season. It seemed like a good character to bring in that went along with the story. And then thinking of that story, it's, you know, something happens. Neon Joe's frame for murder ends up in jail. Now we're in jail for an episode and it's what can we do in that jail, which is where this kind of Johnny Cash character comes in, who's, you know, from his Folsom County uh, concert. We thought that could be a funny thing. So once you're in each world and each 
uh, location, you try to fill in what could be work there. Here's this, you know, there's a skinhead gang in prison. There's this concert. So it's really filling in those blanks once you get to each section. Do all werewolf hunters have an associated pattern or color or is that just a you and Jeff thing? This is at least Joe and Jeff thing. This is for now. Yeah. Just me and just Joe and Jeff. There's Joe's no like Tartan Jorge out there. <laughs> <laughs> Corduroy. <laughs> that, that might be, we'll see if there's more guys. It might be like, I like a corduroy guy. It would be really good. I mean, that would be too close to plaid Jeff. Yeah. But then also the werewolves can hear him sneaking up on <laughs> the swishing. <laughs> <laughs> Stupid is a skill. My analogy would be, it's like the card game hearts where you try to shoot the moon. Do you know this game? Which means, you, you thought I did. Yeah, you have to. It's either all or nothing. And so if you come really close, you failed miserably. And that's maybe the deal with stupid comedy. If it's only stupid but not that funny, thumbs down. Well, it's got to be done right. It has yeah. to be done smartly. Every time I say stupid or dumb, it really means funny. I just don't feel comfortable saying that about myself. Yeah, my show's so funny. <laughs> it's so good. I mean, I do think they're funny and I do think they're good, but they are really dumb. Yes. In a good way. That appeals to me. Do you get notes from the network? A few. What kind of notes? It, given that your your you know modus operandi, your marching orders is be stupid. Uh-huh. <laughs> what what kind of notes can someone give you? I mean, they're more they're, stupid, like not stupid yeah, enough. That's they, what they, they say. They like it. You know, they they encourage it to be creative and inventive and strange. So that's the, really one of the big, huge pluses of making a show there. I want to ask you this. So you worked at Conan for a long time, right? Five years. Mm -hmm. And you've been on, I mean, this came out of Fallon. So now there's this discussion about silly versus topical or Fallon's ratings going down because he's off the zeitgeist. What he essentially argues is, well, you can't argue with this. I'm being who I am. Do you think uh, we'll come around to that? Do you think there's a right way or a wrong way to pitch yourself for a certain time? If you're a late night show, you're on five days a week, you're in everyone's home. I don't know if there's a way to pitch yourself. I do think you maybe adapt to what's going on. I mean, he took a meeting Fallon took a lot of heat for when he tussled Trump's hair. Yeah. In my opinion, rightfully so, I found it upsetting where I felt like, no, this is still a real, in my opinion, a real despicable guy that said some shitty things. So don't just tussle his hair. Yeah. Give him some shit. You can do it in your style if you want to. Don't let him off the hook and don't just play it cutesy. And everyone talks about normalizing that kind of person. But, you know, to his credit, I think he apologized or he I think he took a lot of heat and felt bad for it and maybe paid a price. And and he still wants to stick to being who he is. And well, that is my question. I wonder if viewers consciously or unconsciously are really punishing him for that moment. That seems to be an overinterpretation. I don't think human beings act that way. We seek out entertainment. And one of the reasons that a Colbert type show is working is I think the craftsmanship is excellent, but also, mm-hmm. you know, you could argue that for this time we need that. We need that catharsis. We need less of the Fallon silliness. But if Fallon was so successful doing his karaoke skits with uh, celebrities, all of a sudden we don't like that. I wonder about that. It still serves a purpose. People, I still think, want to be able to see comedy without the politics. Just, I need a break. I'm going to watch this and not think about it. Mm -hmm. You can have both. Do you think if he sticks with what he's good at and who he is, eventually the audience will come back? Perhaps. I'm not even aware of who's doing what in the ratings. Yeah. You know, I really don't pay attention to really that too much. Really not on social media. It's all out there. <laughs> well, I just, you know, I mean, I agree with you. I really like Colbert's show a lot. I've known him a long time. I think he's one of the smartest, funniest guys. I do think it's 
Personally, I think it's very important for there to be that kind of comedy happening right now. So I don't know. I would. Ima- I don't think Jimmy Fallon show is going to go away. People still seem to like it. Yeah. And they do some really funny things on it. It's just a lot less political, but there's room for it. Yeah. And it's, well, A, it's not like Fallon doesn't do a whole bunch of Trump jokes. They're just more like Jimmy Fallon-esque Trump jokes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, which are less about the policy and more about the foibles. Yeah. More relatable. I would think that that's a fine formula. And then Conan doesn't, Conan's essentially silly. I've not seen him get real down and dirty with the mm-hmm. politics. He doesn't get punished for that. Maybe the ratings aren't what they were. And maybe people don't consider him in a race with Fallon and Kimmel and the other ones. But he seems I to be doing his just own thing. That, I think it was that hair tussle. That was it. And it was the combination of the hair tussle, the big, huge laugh th- that seems fake to a lot of people sometimes. It was that particular person person at a particular time where it felt like all right come on that i think turned a lot of people off and you know i i was one of those people that really bugged me when i saw that i just felt like come on don't do that why hasn't saturday night live been punished they let trump host and normalized him too good question really good question i mean i i think they should have i think it's shitty they had him on like why even give Ugh. it just he's it's a tough thing because you want to give both sides equal treatment and all that. And I agree with that. But yeah, it's a it's it's unfortunate. And even all the whole thing about anyway, it, we can go on and on and on and on about this. It's tough. Well, I'll ask you this about your own career. How explicitly political has any of your stuff ever gotten? Not too political. And even when I, have you know, after the election, I was injecting stuff in posts and I was going back and forth about doing it because I feel like I think everyone just feels like they have to say something. Yeah. Everyone's got a platform to do it. And even for myself, I feel like I don't even know if I want to do this. I want to be able to go look at something and just read it and laugh about it and not worry in this moment about politics or what's going on. But it's hard to post like, here's a funny behind the scenes photo when all this crazy shit's going on. It feels so meaningless. When, when I was working at Conan, I was there uh when 9-11 went down and we worked with this firefighter a retired firefighter he had hurt his knee and he retired from firefighting and became an actor and he had a cop uniform and he's a real tough new york guy and we always use him as a cop great guy and, and this is when conan was in new york this then. is when conan yeah. was in new york yeah. so we went back to work after a week and for myself i felt like why it's a week what's the rush and i was really conflicted about going back to work and He came by one day, he was going to a bunch of funerals for people that have been killed, all these firefighters. And he came by with one of his friends and we all, the whole staff got together and he's just talking to us about every day we go down there and it's just night, a nightmare. And at the end of the night, we go to the firehouse and we watch your show and we just tune out. We don't think about all that shit. And it made me certainly feel way better about going back to work during such a weird time and realizing, all right, it's stupid. It's all this comedy is it does serve a purpose for people. It's a it's an escape if you want to put it in those terms. And so now for me, I really go back and forth about here's a here's a funny photo. Sometimes I feel like I don't give a shit, but people need that. I think it's important. It does serve a purpose. As dumb as it sounds, I think it is beneficial that comedy can be a tool to use in the fight (laughs) you know yeah it's and i'll also add another thing everything you've said so far is about the effect on the audience the salubrious effect on the audience but from your own perspective if you're finding some stupid shit funny and you're not saying that then 
it's effect. It, you're allowing outside circumstances to get you down and affect you. True. Yeah. Yeah. That's so also being part true. of it. I mean, it seems highfalutin to say that some of this ridiculous stuff is being true to yourself, but this is who you are. You are Neon Joe. And if you're not hunting the werewolf, you're not being true to yourself. <laughs> no, it's true. And people have, and people will comment in that sense also, like that it's nice to have this break from all this and just watch this dumb show and see a dumb photo. And so I understand it serves its purpose. A lot of that's my own kind of hangups and reconciling those conflicting emotions and figuring out how to just best do it. So I just, whatever, it's hard. Yeah. It's weird right now, man. John Glazer is Neon Joe. The werewolf hunting will commence starting today and all day, all week, every day, and then forever. There's a DVR for that. Thank you, John. Thank you. And now the spiel. The administration touted its deal with the Saudis as breaking records. And indeed, it was record-breaking. $110 billion worth of arms. That ain't nothing. That'll keep the Yemenis hot-stepping for quite a while. That's a remarkable accomplishment when waging war in a country where people still live in mud-brick housing. Very nice mud-brick housing, I should add. Nothing that 150 S-70 Blackhawk helicopters can't take care of, however. That's how many are called for in this agreement. The deal was record-breaking, though it must be said of the overall institution of Saudi-American arms deals. Saying that it's a record is like noting that this year the NFL average weight of offensive lineman record was broken. It's broken every year. George W. Bush had the record. Then Obama had the record. And now Trump has the record. In fact, speaking of Obama, back then a watchdog group compiled all of the stats on the Obama-era Saudi deals. And there were huge cautionary notes sounded. U.S. President Barack Obama's administration has offered Saudi Arabia more than $115 billion in weapons, other military equipment, and training, the most by any U.S. administration in the 71-year U.S.-Saudi alliance, a report seen by Reuters has found. So there is the number, by the way, $115 billion, but that was over eight years. This was $110 billion this year. I found that Obama-era report that uh, Reuters uh, ran really, really interesting. They were concerned. They were talking about the unprecedented level of arms, how experts are saying it might violate treaties. Yemeni war casualties were cited. Here, I'll read some more. The outcry over those casualties led some members of Congress to push for restrictions on arm transfers. And amid the growing outcry, the Pentagon cautioned that its support for Saudi Arabia in its Yemen campaign was not, quote, a blank check. Yeah, well, it turned out it was a blank check, a limitless wire transfer, and an all-you-can-eat Venmo account. Here's my favorite part. The administration last month approved a potential $1.15 billion arms package for Saudi Arabia. Okay, $1 billion. William Hartung of the U.S.-based Center for International Policy said that level of U.S. arms sales to Riyadh should give it leverage to pressure Saudi Arabia. Well, now I guess we got 100 times more leverage. My God, we can make them hand deliver their oil in Tiffany vases and gilded carafes. Beautiful, fantastic carafes. Yeah, well, this spiel isn't about the staggering sums or the wisdom or the morality surrounding such sums. 
It's about what the Trump administration is promising that Americans will get from those giant sums of money. Hundreds of billions of dollars of investments into the United States and jobs, jobs, jobs. So there, jobs, jobs, jobs. If you go by the rules of pluralism, that's at least six jobs, right? Although maybe he was putting it in quotes. How many is jobs, jobs, jobs? Rex Tillerson said this. 109 billion of that is in arms sales to bolster the security of our Saudi partners. And these are going to result in literally hundreds of thousands of American jobs. Hundreds, hundreds of thousands. At least 200,000, that means. Is that possible? Well, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to take you on a mathematical and statistical journey. And at the end, you'll be able to answer the question if it's possible. But if you don't want to wait through all that, I will say this. No, it's not possible. Hundreds of thousands of jobs. That is a great many jobs. Last year, the U.S. economy, riding a record 75 straight months of job additions, added 2 million overall jobs. So you're saying, or Rex is saying, that one arms deal, a big deal, a big deal, but the one deal would account for what amounts to 10% of all U.S. job growth in what was a very good year for job growth? That seems impossible. Here's a couple of facts to make the boast of hundreds a little more tangible. The biggest defense contractor in America is Lockheed Martin. They have 97,000 employees as of 2016. Raytheon, 60,000 employees. General Dynamics, 20,000. Boeing does have 150,000 employees, but most of those are in commercial aviation. So if you add all this up, what Rex Tillerson is saying, that basically they just inked a deal that would take the number of employees making arms at the biggest four arms manufacturers in the U.S. and for every man or woman on the assembly line would give them a buddy with a job from one arms deal. It is ludicrous. Here's another tangible fact. So Lockheed, biggest arms manufacturer, they were part of this deal. They got a $28 billion slice of this deal. And let me quote from what they say that $28 billion will provide. Once fully realized, the programs in this announcement will support more than 18,000 highly skilled jobs in the U.S. So $28 billion, Lockheed slice, that's a quarter, a little more than a quarter of this entire deal. Yet, if you take the 18,000 jobs and multiply by four, you do not get to hundreds of thousands. You do not even get to 100,000. You are more than 100,000 away from hundreds of thousands. And also know this. These are the announced deals. They don't all go through. Congress actually has approval. We'll scotch some of the deals. And deals don't always happen as you say they're going to happen in the press release. This White House does not have a good record on accuracy with past job claims. I'll just cite a couple examples. When Trump signed the stream protection rule at the signing ceremony and it Industry official said, if we had not overturned this rule, we were looking at nearly 70,000 jobs lost across the country. How many coal mining jobs are there in America? 80-something thousand. So they're basically saying, you're going to lose almost every coal mining job if you don't sign this rule, which will allow you to pollute streams. There was another time, there was the waters of the United States rule, and Trump made an executive order and he took it off the books. And he said, if they hadn't taken it off the books, it would have cost hundreds of thousands of jobs. They like this, hundreds of thousands of jobs. Washington Post looked into it for Pinocchios. By the way, that rule, that waters of the United States rule, it never even took effect. There was a stay put on it by the courts immediately. So how could scrapping a rule that never took effect save hundreds of thousands? There is one other explanation for what's going on here. When they say jobs, or even jobs, 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 
who's really asking, well, whose jobs? Here's Abdel al-Jubeir, the Saudi foreign minister. Hundreds of thousands of jobs in both the United States and in Saudi Arabia. So when Tillerson says hundreds of thousands of jobs, or when Trump says jobs, 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 they're not specifying U.S. jobs or Saudi jobs. So that is another explanation. Though I prefer my first explanation. They're just being dishonest. And that's it for today's show. Chris Berube, just producer, signed a two-year deal with Verizon, or as they call it, a deal that will add 20,000 jobs to the cell phone industry. Mary Wilson, just producer, has been known to don her signature pale purple and hunt down a variety of nefarious beasts. Mauve Mary Goblin Garreter coming to the CW this fall. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, used to tie his little cousins to the lawn and hurl projectiles at them. Lawn charts of personal growth. Good times. Follow us on Apple Podcasts. Leave a review there. They're not the iTunes podcast anymore, but the Apple Podcast Store. You gotta let them know what they think at the Apple Podcast Store. Andy Bowers is executive producer of the Panoply Network, which has added 45,000 jobs since these credits began. The gist. You know, sometimes at Long John Silver, I'll order a piece of fish and a hush puppy a la carte. Instead of going with the meal deal, it winds up saving me like 22 cents, depending on whether I go for the add-a-three-piece shrimp. Unfortunately, that did cost them 48,000 jobs last quarter. Oom-peru-de-peru-du-peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>